Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. The state of Georgia is announcing that Friday, this Friday, they're going to be reopening barber salons, nail salons, all these places where people are literally sitting six inches from your face and coughing into your face. And I think that's just crazy. And I think that a lot of people probably, if they're well-educated or at least not educated or informed, are going to say, there's no way I'm getting a haircut in this environment. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. That quote was Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune, who I first met almost 15 years ago when I was at Google at the dawn of Web 2.0 and Health 2.0. JL, as he's known, is a serial entrepreneur and a digital health pioneer. He is board certified in internal medicine and serves as entrepreneur in residence at the hospital for special surgery in New York City. And if that's not enough, the man has an MBA from Wharton. His LinkedIn profile is in the episode description, but that's not what this episode is all about. You see, JL just recovered from COVID-19. He joined me and my co-founder, Andrew McDowell, for a very candid conversation, not just a telling of when the doctor becomes the patient, but a testimony, an education, and a warning into our modern-day reality. Please enjoy Jean-Luc Neptune. JL, you're vertical. <laughs> I am vertical, yes. Let me ask you a question from a, uh, a patient perspective. How many times have people told you, but you look great? <laughs> um, well, the funny thing is, it's important to understand that the, the whole time that I had uh, COVID and had most of my the, the worst symptoms of the coronavirus, I was actually totally quarantined in my apartment with my family. We didn't leave this apartment for 15 days. So, uh, you know, the worst part of it, I, I didn't really see anybody. So I, I guess I, I, I couldn't earn that comment. So by the, by the time that uh, I was able to get out of the house, I was sort of already able to walk around and, and feeling pretty good. So if the walls could talk, you'd be judged well. Yes, I hope so. <laughs> We've done so many segments in the past uh, at Stupid Cancer about when the doctor becomes the patient. And here you are exemplifying that for all the wrong reasons. You didn't ask to get this, but you're on the front lines. And it's very interesting to hear a perspective from someone who is in the medical profession when they become a patient of the medical profession. How did you identify as symptomatic? What process did you go through that may have been unique to you being a medical professional out there? And the experience therein of having to take all the precautions you would normally probably tell your patients to do and any challenges that you ran into. 
Oh my God, that's a that's like a multi uh, parts A through Z. So I'll try to answer it the best I can. And if there are <laughs> any parts that I miss, uh, I'll let you know. Um, I will say that in general, being a healthcare provider, being trained as a healthcare provider, and particularly being trained at the highest level as a physician is really an advantage in many ways. I mean, there's some disadvantages when you get sick, but there are some real advantages in terms of understanding, you know, how to navigate the system, understanding how to assess yourself, understanding, you know, how to think about, you know, your disease. One of the things I was able to do early on is I was able to get tested. So as you know that, um, you know, in New York, it's still very difficult to get tested for COVID. But, you know, I have been a member of One Medical for some time. Um, I use One Medical because, you know, it's good to have another doctor um, to talk about things. You know, I usually get an annual physical, fortunately don't have a lot of medical problems. And so I've, I've known about One Medical for a long time. I knew that they might be testing or they might be able to test. And, you know, I gave them a call a couple of days into my symptoms when it was pretty clear that what I had was not just a regular cold. So I'd say understanding how to navigate the system, understanding, you know, where health resources can be found is a real advantage when you're a physician, knowing how to talk to other doctors and other health care providers is really useful. And then, you know, being an internal medicine doctor was particularly useful in terms of evaluating my symptoms. I would argue that there are a lot of people who, you know, so my symptoms started on March 10th hit a crescendo probably March 17th or 18th. I would argue that there are a lot of people who don't have my background who on the 13th or the 14th would have been in a doctor's office or on the 15th or 16th would have been showing up in an emergency room. And, you know, understanding the disease understanding my body, understanding like, you know, how to how to think about my symptoms, I realized that most of the time I was pretty sick, but for the most part, I didn't need to go to the emergency room. So like on my on my worst night was the 17th. You know, I had a fever to 101.7, 101.9 with Tylenol on me. So it was probably even higher than that. I was sweating like crazy. I was coughing like crazy. I was wheezing a little bit. I have a touch of asthma. Uh, again, I think most people would have been going right to the ER. But for me, I, I understood that I was sick, but really didn't need to go to the hospital, uh, and that I should just wait it out. And that's actually one of the things that you do as an internal medicine doctor is you follow people, reassess, follow, reassess, and follow, reassess. So I'd say that was definitely an advantage for me and allowed me to, to I think, have a better experience than many other people who are dealing with coronavirus right now. Jean-Luc, there are lots of different symptoms that are being described out there. At least I have the sense that that people are having very different experiences of this particular illness. What did yours look like? And what do you know about the other clusters of symptoms that people experience? Sure. So in medicine, we use the term uh, protean, so P-R-O-T-E-A-N, to describe a disease that has a bunch of different manifestations. So um, one of, uh, I live in a building with a doorman. One of our doormen had the mildest symptoms. You know, he lost the sense of smell and taste. And from what I've come to read in the literature, that particular manifestation is associated with very mild symptoms, very quick recovery. And I've heard that from multiple people in my in my personal life, friends who've, who've been infected in some way, shape or form. Then I would say, you know, you have 
my kind of presentation, which was fever, fatigue, sore throat before the cough, and then, you know, plenty, plenty of cough. And then, uh, you know, after my fever broke, lots of fatigue to recover. I would say that's a very common uh, presentation. Uh, we have a friend who's a, a guitarist, and uh, he had pretty much the same exact situation that I did, like four weeks of symptoms, most of it spent recovering from the fatigue. And then, you know, there are people who have much more aggressive courses where, you know, they're developing shortness of breath. Uh, it appears that diarrhea is one of the signs of a more severe illness. And then those are people who are going to the emergency room and sometimes having to get on a ventilator and get very, very aggressive support. So, you know, there's lots of different ways the disease presents. Again, I think the most common is probably cough, but, you know, to either side of the mild, moderate, severe uh, spectrum, you can get lots and lots of different things. And I think that's in the early days, that's what made it difficult for doctors is because, you know, you have your patients presenting with all these different symptoms, like what is this? And it turns out it's probably all one virus causing a whole bunch of different symptoms. Where does an MD go when an MD needs help? And how do you balance your medical professional training with hypochondria? I fortunately don't have lots of medical needs. You know, I don't have any medical problems other than some, you know, hay fever allergies and a little touch of asthma, uh, what people call the allergic triad. So, you know, I don't really take medications except for uh, some allergy meds during the spring and the fall. And, you know, I've, I've been fortunately pretty healthy, knock on wood to date. So I, I do have a physician that I go to. I, I used to have a, a doctor who converted to a pure concierge and he was like, well, if you want to see me now, it's a thousand bucks a visit. And I said, well, that's a little too rich for my blood. So I ended up going to one medical, which is, you know, one of these uh, sort of hybrid concierge, new startup-y kind of primary care offerings. There's a bunch of them out there, but, you know, they take your insurance and they they charge you an extra 99 bucks a year. And actually I get my health insurance through JustWorks. So it's offered as a, a JustWorks benefit. And what I like to do is I like to be seen, you know, once a year, or if I have an active issue, I like to be able to interact with the physician and just talk to that person who is responsible for, you know, helping me think through a problem. So I'll, before I go to the doctor, I'll generally have a, a hypothesis about what's going on with me. So, you know, I, when I call the doctor on the 15th, which was, I guess, a Sunday, um, you know, I told him, I think I have COVID. And he said, okay, well, that sounds like what you have is probably COVID. So let's get you tested tomorrow. So, you know, I was able to, it's like having a thought partner. I already have an idea because I'm trained to have an idea about what's going on with me. I talked to another physician to bounce those ideas off of and try to help me manage my, my care. Um, so it's a bit of self-management, but also relying on, you know, an experienced professional. You know, I have an extended network of doctors who I use as consultants, and that's a very, very useful thing to have, especially when you know how to talk doctor with them. In terms of the hypochondria, um, I will say that when, you know, it's a very common thing at the beginning of your training, um, like in the first or second year of medical school to be a hypochondriac because you start reading about all these diseases and all these symptoms and you're like, oh my God, I have this, I have that. But I think as you get a little bit more seasoned and a little older and a little more around the block, or you've had a couple more loops around the block, uh, hypochondria becomes less of a problem. JL, under what circumstance would you have registered, I guess, the trigger to know you had to go to the hospital? Well, you know, it's, it's an excellent question because when I, you know, a month ago is like, in terms of this pandemic is like a year ago, you know, it's, it feels, you know, the, you know, when I was first presenting with symptoms on March 10th, 
it was still very early. Um, you know, I, I described in a video that I recorded, I recorded a couple of videos uh, for, for social media. And, you know, I described that I had a confirmed exposure to somebody who had COVID on March 7th. And I can tell you, man, like March 7th, we were not really, really worried at that point yet. We were, I, I think at that conference, I had just started doing elbow greetings. But in the week before that, you know, I was going to the gym, I was sweating on equipment, I was riding on crowded subway trains. So I would say that that early time, I, 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 I didn't even really have a mental model for what was going on with uh, coronavirus. But as we went on as my, you know, as I got sick and my symptoms progressed, it became very clear that the trigger that you really had to worry about was the shortness of breath stuff. And that's, you know, I, I, I learned that because I was on Twitter and I was reading and I was, you know, you know, reading the New England Journal and other things. And I realized like, that seems to be the thing that you really, really have to guard against. And then I think CDC eventually published some guidelines that said that, you know, was the thing that you really need to look out for. So I would say that, that's, you know, that's the trigger to look out for the big one. And then, you know, any other thing like you would call failure to thrive at home, if you're an elderly person, and you're being debilitated by diarrhea, or you're, you're, you're coughing so badly, those are other things that are going to be triggers to drive you to the hospital. But fortunately, for me, I never really hit any of those triggers. So as we start to look at the steps that society will be able to take that might allow us to return to something closer to the lives we were living before, other than simply deciding that yelling the word freedom will make the problem go away and uh, you can therefore walk out the door and start behaving normally, we do need to look at the development of new medical practices and new medical technologies uh, in order to enable us to, to get back to something like where we were. I just, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts and hear anything about what you know about what I think are the four areas of technology that the industry is working on right now. One would be the vaccine. The second would be screening tests. The third would be therapies, hydroxychloroquine, remdesivir, et cetera. And then finally, uh, sort of testing for the after effects. Those would be the antibody tests. We'd love to hear what you know about each of those areas. You sort of signaled your your position on this by talking about freedom. So I, I'm very much with you. I, you know, I think this is a healthcare crisis that should be managed by healthcare people. The healthcare people know what they're talking about. Everybody else, you know, whether they're finance people or, or real estate people or tech people, have no idea what healthcare is. Uh, they don't know how to think about a pandemic. They don't know understand herd immunity. They don't understand any of that stuff. And I think they're the ones who are pushing this notion of. I get to do what I want to do. I, you know, I, I'm going to go out regardless of what you tell me. I mean, you know, a lot of those people are going to die, and uh, it's it's that simple. So one of the things that I wanted to do is just point to some people that I that I really trust. So I trust Fauci. Uh, Fauci is a, a real a real expert. He's speaking truth to power. So I love Fauci. Two other people you should look at: uh, Scott Gottlieb. So Scott Gottlieb was the former FDA commissioner, actually under Trump and left, I think, either early this year or late last year. He has really been honest and forthright and saying, I think, a lot of things that make sense. And then there's another guy named Andy Slavitt. Um, and Andy Slavitt was the former head of CMS uh, under Obama. I don't think he was actually ever confirmed. I think he was always the acting. But he's another one who's been saying really, really uh, providing really, really good information. This is going to be a long long process before we get to normal. I think this is 
months and months and months and months. And it's dependent on so many other things happening correctly, right? Things have to be done properly. And if they're not done properly, then it could extend this epidemic even further. And I would argue that there are a lot of things that we haven't done properly. And that's why, you know, Germany and South Korea are returning to normal already. And we are still starting to, we're, we're still seeing the number of deaths and the number of cases increase. I think we've botched the management of this for a number of different reasons that we could talk about later. But by point, vaccine, I think is far off. Um, you know, it takes a long time to develop a vaccine, 12 to 18 months. So I don't think a vaccine is going to be what gets us back to normal. I think the vaccine will get us to a point where, you know, we can maybe get 100% back normal and nobody is afraid anymore. But I think a vaccine is like, I'm not waiting for a vaccine to get back to work. The testing of sick people, what they call the uh, RT-PCR, uh, so reverse transcriptase PCR, uh, polymerase chain reaction tests. So those are the nasal swabs that they do for people who are actively presenting with symptoms. Um, I think that that has been a huge part of Germany and South Korea's success. And I think in terms of those tests, those countries have shown that they could rapidly scale their ability to provide those tests. I think at the peak, Germany was doing like 30,000 or 50,000 tests per, per week or something like that. And I think that the industrial capability to scale the uh, nasal swab testing exists. And I think that by doing that will allow us to identify people who are sick and then to quarantine those people. Now, there's an important correlate to that. You've also got to be able to do contact tracing. And the truth is, we don't really have a good system for doing that, right? Our public health systems are not really designed to do that. And I was listening to Governor Cuomo, who is, who had, I would say is another voice that I trust and another voice who I think has been doing a great job during this pandemic. He said, we're going to have to hire an army of people to help with contract contact tracing. But I think that in terms of the swabbing people who have active disease, quarantine, quarantining them and then contact or tracing their contacts, that's possible. It's a solvable problem, probably solvable on the timeline of a couple of months. And again, South Korea and Germany have shown that that works and that's a strategy, right? In terms of treatment, I'm a skeptic of hydroxychloroquine. I think that when the data comes out, it'll be shown that it either doesn't work or it has a very modest effect in certain patient subgroups, right? And certain points of the disease. Um, I've been having some pretty heated debates on Facebook uh, with certain people lately about this topic. But, you know, in evaluating the initial studies that came out, there was a French study. The investigator there was named Gautret. And then, and then there's another guy named Zelenko who was up in Rockland County. I mean, if you look at the studies that they published, they're just like terrible studies and you would never approve a drug based on those studies. And I'm really suspicious or skeptical, let's say, of the data that was produced. And as I talked to my friends, my, my social network, as I was telling you, they're seeing patients get, everybody's getting hydroxychloroquine in the hospital, and there's really no evidence that there is a pronounced effect. Miracle drugs, you can, the providers, even at a double-blind study, if it's a miracle drug, the doctors can really tell. Like the providers can say like, these patients are clearly doing better than these other patients. Back with our guest after the break. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. 
Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hydroxychloroquine is in wide use, is that right? A lot of patients are getting it in the hospital. Um, and, and I don't know what the, um, I don't know what the criteria are. I think it's like anybody, many people who are on a vent are getting it. And a lot of people I think on the floors are getting it. I think it's institution dependent, but you know, I think there's this perception that doctors are withholding this, this miracle drug. And the truth is actually a lot of patients are getting it in the hospital setting. There's really no obvious benefit that's been shown by the drug. Now, there is this other drug that you mentioned, remdesivir, and then there's a whole class of antivirals similar to it that actually has shown some benefit in early stage studies. But, you know, I hold remdesivir to the same standard that I hold hydroxychloroquine. I I believe it when we have a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, peer-reviewed study that is published in a, a journal that has a good reputation. And I think we're still a little bit away from that. But if I had to bet my money, I bet that remdesivir is going to work and hydroxychloroquine azithromycin is not going to work. My my interest is on the fourth part, which is the serology of I had it, or I think I had it, or did I have it? And how do I know I had it? You, you clearly had it and you can opt into studies. And you mentioned on the phone with me that you were already in a study. I may have had a small version of it, my own version of it, and I just want to know. So I'm either in the clear to do certain things or maybe see my parents or what does that even mean? Where are we in understanding at scale? How do we get tested if we think we had it and are not symptomatic of the necessity? The antibodies were probably the furthest behind in terms of the antibodies. Um, From what I understand, there's only one FDA-approved study or one FDA-approved test. From what I understand, the FDA has allowed a bunch of other tests. I think there's like 30 other antibody tests out there, but they haven't gone through the formal FDA process. So from what I understand, a lot of those antibody tests are of varying quality, some being very good, some being not so good. So that's the first issue is just the availability of tests. I have been participating in a study at Mount Sinai for people who have convalescent, it's called a convalescent plasma study. So the idea there is that people who have recovered from COVID have antibodies in their blood and can potentially, you can har- uh, harvest those antibodies and share them with people who are sick or maybe even use them for prophylaxis. So uh, I started participating in that study right when I recovered beginning of this month. And I learned uh, at the end of last week 
that I have anti-COVID neutralizing antibodies and I have them in a high enough uh, concentration that I can actually donate blood. So tomorrow morning at this time, I will be donating blood over at the New York Blood Center. And I encourage anybody who thinks they've been you know, exposed to COVID to try to participate in this Mount Sinai study. Is that, is that the collection of, of blood or plasma or both? So, so you collect blood, right? So blood includes uh, re- uh, red cells, white cells, platelets, as well as clotting factors and antibodies. And then what they do is they spin off the cells. And then what's left is the antibodies and some other liquids. And that's what you can transfuse into people who are sick and who need that, uh, you know, the antibody to help help them treat the, the virus. Uh, now, Matt, you asked a very important question is, what does having those antibodies mean? And that is actually the biggest question. If you have these neutralizing antibodies, are you really immune? Nobody has that answer. The Chinese who've been dealing with this for you know six months don't have the answer for that. You know, And I think that that's actually going to be one of the big, big things to be studied. The hope is that people who have these antibodies are immune, but every person that I've spoken to who is a virologist, immunologist, ID person says, hmm, we don't really know. And I think that that's going to be one of the, the challenging things as we go forward. Scientifically, how would we factor that or figure that out? I mean, I think you're you're just going to have to do a study where you find people who have confirmed antibody titers in their blood, and you're going to have to follow them prospectively, which is probably a hard test, a study to do, and figure out whether they get reinfected or not. So are, you know, are there a hundred, let's say you have a hundred people confirmed with antibodies, you study them, do any of them get reinfected? And uh, that's not an easy study to do. And that's probably going to take a little while to, to do that study. Just some numbers there. Uh, In South Korea, on Friday, this number might have changed. We're recording this on Tuesday. There were 163 patients who tested positive after a full recovery. That's just over 2% of the country's 7,829 recovered patients. Right. So this has been a challenging and subtle part of this is what does it mean to test positive, first of all? So are they talking about antibody tests or the PCR tests? So I think they're probably talking about the PCR test. So they're PCRing people after they've recovered. Pretty sure it's not the antibody. And the truth is, you know, with a lot of viral illnesses, and this is comes from my understanding as a as an internal medicine doc, you know, you're shedding virus from the time you get infected. So remember, you get infected, and then it takes you a couple of days before you sh- start showing symptoms. Before you start showing symptoms, you actually start shedding virus. So you could probably test positive even before you develop symptoms. And then during the whole time that you have symptoms, you're definitely going to be shedding virus. You're going to be positive. And then probably in recovery, you are going to be shedding virus as well. Your body may have beaten the virus, has sort of subdued it, but you may still be shedding virus and you may still test positive as a result. So I think that, you know, it's a, per, it's a perplexing question and it's something that I think people are studying right now. But my guess is that even after you're recovered, you can still shed virus and you can still test positive. And there have been these sort of weird patterns where people are positive, negative, then positive. I tend to think that the people who are positive, negative, positive were actually positive, positive, positive throughout and had that one weird negative test. Like apparently these PCR tests have a false negative rate of 30%. So, you know, I could see somebody being positive, positive, positive in actuality, but testing positive, negative, positive. With your doctor hat on, what's your advice specifically for New Yorkers in terms of life hacks? Clearly, most of us are 
staying home. And in certain cases, many of us have to go to work if we're essential and walk into a narrow deli where you can't possibly do, you can do your best to stay six feet away, but it's awfully impossible sometimes. And elevators are often very small. If you're going out for a walk and your neighbors in your apartment happen to be with you, New Yorkers are very unique in how we live in an urban area. What's your advice? In terms of what we can do in New York, you know, you're totally right, Matt. It's, you know, it's, we have a challenge here. You know, I I went shopping. I, I live on the Upper West Side. I went to the West Side Market. The aisles are literally like, not even 36 inches wide while you're reaching for the the chocolate syrup there's somebody reaching for the peanut butter you're liter- you know you're 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 30 inches apart 12 inches apart from each other so it's really hard and if you have to go to the grocery store that's the challenge you're going to face so the hacks that i that i have focused on is number 1 stay in the house as much as you can and that can be difficult i got i have two kids you know we're we're ripping each other apart in this house but uh, you know we're doing the best that we can but i think spending time inside away from other people who are potentially infected is the number one choice i think that when you go out um, you know the cdc recommendations are that you wear a mask so um, i think uh, everybody should mask up before they go out i have uh, i'm using n95 masks i've seen some people using painter mask where there's like, you know, filters on both sides. Use a good quality mask. I think that the typical surgical masks are not enough. Um, And I think that wearing an N95 mask, even if you're in a tight space, can protect you from inhaling other people's micro droplets that come from their sneezes or their coughs. I would say, like, for instance, I live in a building with an elevator. I have been avoiding the elevator. So I generally take the stairs, which is a way to help me avoid other people. I would consider whether you should be in a subway train at this point or a crowded bus. So, you know, I'm doing city bike if I have to go anywhere or I had to go to the Mount Sinai study. I just walked across Central Park. So I think that those are things you can do. OCD level of hand washing is probably a smart thing. Having Purell and dousing your hands with Purell. I hate the sensation of Purell on my hands, but it's something that I'm doing. And, uh, you know, I think those are all the things you can do. The recommendation to not touch your face, that's a good suggestion, but it's, it's hard not to do that. Although I do think that wearing the mask makes it harder for you to touch your face. Social distancing works. It's how we've been able to tame the, the, the curve in New York. And I think if you do these other, other things, you know, you can benefit too. On a related note, a question that's relevant to my family that I think might resonate with plenty of other families. My wife's parents have offered to drive up from Maryland and to pick up our children so that we can more easily move and get our jobs done in the coming week. My concern, of course, is that we're endangering her parents in particular by considering this. What do you think about that? Oh, good question. Uh, you know, look, the, 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 the age group, so NYU Langone had a great study where they showed predictive factors or uh, characteristics that predicted the highest likelihood of hospitalization, and intubation, and death. And look, uh, advanced age is number one. So if your parents are in the 60, 70, 80 range, there's a lot of risk for them. So I'd say at least in your specific use case, you know, you, you have to try to figure out how can we quarantine our kids so that we're pretty sure that they are not infected. So maybe just, you know, staying in the house as you have been already is enough. 
generally two weeks is the number that we generally think about as the time that people need to develop symptoms. And I think if your kids are not sick for two weeks and you're not sick for two weeks, then it might make sense to take them down there. I've had friends go leave New York, go to Florida, go to New Jersey, go to Delaware. I mean, I think those are all potential options. You know, my wife and I gave that some thought as well. We have family in New Jersey and Connecticut. Um, but my concern always was, if I did get sick, am I going to rely on a community hospital in Northwest Connecticut, or am I going to go to the best doctors in the world in New York City? And my thought was, you know, always the latter. And then obviously I got sick myself. So selfishly, I would love my children to hug their grandparents with the zero threat because it's been two months since they've done that. Where are we going to be? How do we navigate the knowns? and the unknowns through this lens of metropolitan living. When it comes to envisioning the approach that society can take to getting back to normal, what does that look like? How long does it take? What steps need to be hit? Well, look, I think it's, first of all, it's, it's going to differ by state. It's probably even going to differ by county. And I think that there are some states that have great healthcare resources, great public health system, very progressive, uh, enlightened leaders. And I think that those states are going to get back to normal faster than other states. Um, and I think that there are other states that are going to get creamed and are going to take a long time to get back to normal. I think it also depends on where you are in terms of the uh, the epidemic, right? You know, New York, we're cresting. Um, in other states, they're just beginning to, to, to feel the pinch of the of the virus in terms of deaths. Um, so I think it's going to come down to, you know, those factors. But I think the number one factor is going to be, are people afraid or are they not afraid? And I think that that's going to be the key driver. Like, you know, the state of uh, Georgia is announcing that Friday, this Friday, they're going to be reopening barber salons, nail salons, all these places where people are literally sitting six inches from your face and coughing into your face. And I think that's just crazy, you know? And I think that a lot of people probably, if they're well-educated or at least not educated or informed, are going to say, there's no way I'm getting a haircut in this environment, you know? And I think it's not until people feel comfortable that we'll start to see a normal. So I think a couple of things are going to have to happen. I think we're going to have to, going back to what I was saying before, we're going to have to have widespread RT-PCR testing, this nasal swabbing, so that we can identify who's sick, quarantine them, and then do the contact tracing. Again, the South Korea-Germany approach. And then I think we're going to have to have at least one medication that can show in a study that it prevents people from dying, right? So that people will at least have this feeling with those two things in place that the sick people are being quarantined, so I, I don't have to worry so much about them. And if I do get sick, I'm not going to die. And I think that if we have those two things in New York State, I think we could potentially start to see us getting back to 80% of normal. And I think that that's possible. Now, I've had friends asking me, like, is that going to be this summer or is that going to be this fall? Is that going to be this year? I think kids will be back to school in fall. That's my hope. And I think what I saw with Scott Gottlieb is he was saying that widespread testing may be available by September. And then hopefully we'll have a drug by then as well. I think, you know, summer camp, I think is going to be sketchy. I don't know if kids are going to be going to summer camp, although the state of Connecticut, where my kids go to camp, has said that camp is going to be open. I, I don't know if that's going to happen. And I think if we have those two things in place, hopefully we can ba be back to normal, at least kids in school and out of our damn apartments by September. <laughs> but uh, TBD. <laughs> oh, God, please, yes. We're sorry you had to go through this, and you look great, but you're in such a unique position 
as a physician who has also worked in health tech for 20 years to have this incredible crow's nest perch on how to make some sense of the insanity out there. I wanted to thank you for joining us, and we will definitely have you back again because this is too critical not to talk about. Until next time, thank you. Thanks so much, Dale. Okay, sounds good. Thanks. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.